Lower middle market businesses are a vastly underappreciated and undervalued space with tremendous potential for returns. Unfortunately, finding and acquiring a company can be tiring and filled with inefficiencies, wasted time, and ultimately dead ends. But our sponsor, PrivSource, grew out of the need to navigate through the chaotic waters of the lower middle market and help buyers source high-quality acquisition opportunities. PrivSource provides a fully vetted M&A deal platform with hundreds of live engagements thus far. Unlike other M&A platforms, PrivSource fully vets all members and deals to ensure they meet high-quality standards. They also never charge a referral or success fee on any deal that is sourced through the platform. The platform sources deals from a variety of industries and verticals, with coverage in the U.S. and Canadian markets. Deals range in size from $5 to $15 million in revenue and $1 to $5 million in EBITDA. If you're seeking to acquire and operate a lower middle market business and want to see more deals and pay less fees, check out PrivSource. As a listener of the podcast, you can save 50% off your first month by going to PrivSource.com circle. That's PrivSource.com circle. My guest today on the Circle of Competence podcast is Ryan Beagleman, former CEO of BizNow Media, co-founder of Summit Series, and former part owner of Powder Mountain, America's largest ski resort. Currently, Ryan is an executive coach, and having built three companies, Ryan is passionate about helping other executives uh, improve their well-being through developing a fitter mind and practicing mindfulness in action. And We're going to take a little bit of a different track today, Uh, not so much on the business side, but just uh, exploring some of these principles that he's learned through his journey, how he helps others apply them as well. So Ryan, welcome to the Circle of Confidence podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm uh, excited to get into it. I'm pumped to have you today. We're going to take a different tack today. And uh, a lot of podcasts like to explore guests' backstories. And I'd love for you to give kind of a two-minute overview of, of what your backstory is. But then I want to get into some of the philosophy that you teach in your executive coaching business. And we'll start with mindfulness and action. Before we get there, maybe give your two-minute back backstory uh, just to set, set some context. Yeah, I mean, I'm from the D.C. area. Uh, I'm, I'm talking to you from Miami right now, where I've made the... Uh, the winter's move that so many people from New York make. I, I, uh, I normally live in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, and uh, I've had this kind of crazy business journey of uh, going from banking to private equity to um, essentially buying into this company called BizNow, which, was, uh, which became the largest publisher of commercial real estate news. Think like Business Insider for uh, commercial real estate, so like a, an email newsletter business. And that business... Um, we, we made a lot of our money producing conferences. So we produce 300 conferences a year and, uh, sell about 60,000 tickets to commercial real estate executives and, um, sold that business in 2016 to a private equity firm. Uh, it was a bootstrapped business, no, no venture. And, uh, was, which was a big part of like my kind of approach to entrepreneurship. This kind of like, I like to call it like holistic entrepreneurship, like using entrepreneurship as a vehicle for creating real wealth, which to me is about like creating freedom. Um, and, uh, which is, you know, not only about making, getting financial freedom, but also having freedom to be creative freedom to, you know, work from where you want and, uh, work with people that you love working with and work on things you love doing and, um, and really finding like, you know, the Japanese concept of like Ikigai, you know, where you're at the intersection of what you love to do, what you're good at doing and where there's a market need. And, um, and along that same journey back in 2009, I co-founded summit or summit series. 
which is like a community for entrepreneurs, academics, artists, um, and all kinds of leaders from around the world who come together for these like multi-day festivals, uh, kind of like ideas festivals, if you will, and a community that lives on throughout the year. And um, in 2012, my partners and I acquired the ski resort that you mentioned, Powder Mountain in Utah, um, which is probably the craziest thing we, we've done. And uh, there we, we've been developing um, a second home community for, uh, you know, change makers, people that are interested in being leaders in, in different fields. And, uh, and as well as keeping the resort open to the public um, for uh, the resort's been around since 1972. So it's a, it's a ski resort and an awesome place to hike and bike and things like that. Uh, it's about 10,000 acres and it's in uh, Utah, about an hour north of Salt Lake City International Airport. And yeah, we, my partners and I also created a, a $30 million venture fund and did a lot of venture investing. And I also do a lot of real estate investing. And so I've had this kind of like, Kind of conglomerated approach to business instead of being like laser focused on one thing I, I i kind of tried to solve my shiny object syndrome by having multiple things going on at, at once uh with different you know ceos eventually running different things and uh and trying to bootstrap it all so that we could have a lot of um just control over like our destiny and over the last three or four years i've, I've exited most of those things and have found myself more and more focusing on, as you mentioned, like executive and life coaching, just helping other leaders, mostly CEOs and founders, um, just perform at a higher level, make better decisions, feel more fulfilled, feel more creative, be more creative, um, and you know, relate better to other people uh, on a team, their co-founders, their investors, their colleagues, as well as even like, like their spouses and other important people in their life, um, just so that they could have yeah, a higher performing, more fulfilling life. And um, yeah, I've been really, really enjoying it. And uh, it's been, it's just been really fun. So that's what I'm up to right now. I've got, I have, you know, I've got 18 people right now that I'm working with, which I think is about my limit. And, um, and I, I, I meet with them twice a month for 80 minutes. And it's, it's really, it's been really interesting. If there was one person that called that you could work with, who would it be? You know, it's funny you asked that. Like, I've been thinking like, well, you know, what if I just worked with people? I think a part of me thinks like maybe I should spend a third of my coaching on people that are doing things that change the world in ways that I'm really interested in. Like, you know, it'd be really cool to coach like one of the people that are created, trying to crack the code on, on fusion, you know, as like an alternative energy source. Um, it'd be really awesome, I think, to work with people that are working on bringing psychedelics as a health tool to, uh, you know, to, to form to more people. So I think coaching people like that are leading things that I'm really like passionate about um, and that I'm really curious about is, is really interesting. It's something I'm drawn to. For whatever reason, I, I really love working with people who are building conglomerated businesses, businesses where they have multiple CEOs reporting to them and have multiple businesses. So I have like four clients right now who own anywhere from like 10 to 30 companies. And those are really, really fun. I, I find the challenges that they're facing really, really interesting. Um, and uh and then, yeah, just people that I love. I love coaching people that where I, there's a lot for me to learn from them too. And they're, they're, they're on the bleeding edge or they're really pushing the, the envelope of like what it means to live, like live a self-actualized life. And they're really getting into like the real nitty gritty nuances of like, what, how does, what does that really look like? So yeah, those three buckets are, are the, kind of, the kind of people I'm really fascinated, fascinated with. Totally. I want to earmark the, the holding company 
clients that you're working with? Maybe we can come back to that later. I'd be really curious. That's something that I'm, I'm really interested in, just holding companies in general. So we can earmark that for later in the conversation. But at a high level, tell us about your philosophy of mindfulness and action. I know this is like kind of the high level philosophy that you take into your coaching. And if you would describe it in a different way, what would it be called? And just take us through that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm happy to talk about the holding company stuff. That's like some of my favorite things to talk about and uh, think about. And uh, yeah. So what, I mean, look, what I found is that as I was building my mindfulness practice and my meditation practice over the last 20 years, that I think for whatever reason, we've been over-indexing seated meditation as like a, in pop, in popular culture, you know, there's the Calm app and Headspace and all these apps. And they've basically popularized this idea that you should sit for 10 minutes to an hour a day and you should meditate. I mean, how, I mean, the monks, you know, they meditate for three, four hours a day. And it is extremely uh, powerful to sit and meditate. It's like, uh, but what I found, you know, as powerful is what I would call like, or, you know, what others would call meditation in action, which is like, what happens when you get off the cushion and how do you actually, you know, when you're not in a room that's silent and all the conditions are perfect and you're back into the fray, you're back into the mess, of life and the drama of life. Like, how do you actually put to use the practice? Um, you know, the mindfulness practice, right? The meditation practice is a practice of noticing what's occurring, you know, what's happening in your mind. And then there's all these, you know, creative things you can do once, once you notice. If you could increase the percentage of your day that you're actually aware, actually noticing what it is you're feeling, what it is you're thinking, what emotions are running through your body, where are they running through your body? If you can increase the percentage of your day that where you're actually taking notice of that, because mo- much of the time we're, we're not, we're just kind of automatonically kind of going through the motions of an hour, the motions of, you know, you take a shower. Like even when I shower, I'll go in and out of kind of quote unquote consciousness or awareness, like, you know, a dozen times. It's, it's hard to really hold and maintain the focus of noticing what's occurring for more than, you know, often 30 seconds or 20 seconds at a time. And but once, once you're starting to get into that practice and you're starting to develop the ability to notice, how do you actually treat people with greater kindness, be more patient, be more creative? And so I thought I could talk a bit about that because I, I find that that is really a really powerful practice. How do you train you know, the executives that you work with to, to be better at just noticing, especially in the moment? Because like you said, it's very easy when you're when it's quiet, it's 5.30 in the morning, it's dark, there's no distractions around. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a muscle memory. You know, you're really, this is a practice and and you're, you're going to build it up from being, um, you know, very, uh, you know, not, not really being able to catch many of these moments in a day to be able to catch many, many, many more of them. And to the point where just like riding a bike, it becomes more and more automatic. Um, so, you know, the practice of course is similar to the practice when you're seated and meditation is you're simply just kind of like earth to Ryan. Hey, we're having a, Ooh, wow. We're doing one of those. Like, yeah, we're about to get into an argument. We're like at the, we're at the very beginning of the argument. Um, and like, Oh, like what, what would we like to do here? Do we want to have an argument? Would we like this argument to unfold or is there some more productive way to have this conversation for instance, or, Hey, we're, we just spent the last, you know, seven minutes wrapped around the axle, obsessively thinking about this particular problem or thinking about the comment my mom just made to me on that last call that I found infuriating. Like, and we've been kind of like 
pacing around the room thinking about that thought. And I'll have like, I'll have this, you know, these moments where I'll, where I'll be like, you know, oh, wow, that's right. We're, we've been doing that. Like, hey, you know, kind of earth to myself, like, and then I'll kind of check in and I'll notice, okay, like my shoulders are kind of forward and up. My face is kind of tight. Uh, I might, and I use a bunch of different tricks. So like anytime I see something red or orange in the room or as I'm walking around, I'll, I'll often use that as a check-in. So I see something red. I've like trained my mind to this. I'm like, and you'd be amazed how many things you'll start to notice that are red or orange that you weren't noticing before. And I'll start to think, oh, wow, like, let me just scan my body. Sometimes I'll just notice how do my feet feel on the ground? How does my butt feel on the chair? My back feel on the couch? And naturally, instinctively, the body just takes a deep breath. I, almost always when this occurs. And then things just kind of slow down for a second and you're able to kind of catch a little perspective and like zoom out for a moment. You take a deep breath and like, and I'll often smile. Like I'll often like, I've, I've kind of trained myself to um, find my mindfulness practice quite hilar like hilarious. Like the absurdity of, of the human condition is so funny to me now. The more I study myself, like the more I'm like, Oh, wow. Like, yeah, we're like spinning around on a globe going thousands of miles an hour, rotating revolutions around the sun, at super high speed. We're in this crazy, bizarre, like universe. There's kind of this like cosmic joke that seems to be going on in the background. That's like, I'm just like this little, you know, minion among, you know, billions on this planet. One of many, you know, species. And I'm just having this human drama with my mom right now, you know, or with my co-founder. It's like uh, it's like Carl Sagan's blue dot photo. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And and they talk about the flyover effect that astronauts have. You know, when they come back to Earth, that they feel this kind of oneness and this this sense of peace from having seen the Earth from that that from that perspective. So, the first part of it, and because I, I want to try for the audience to maybe build like a mental model with you of what mindfulness in action actually, if you can picture it, right? So the first step is training the mind to just notice. Just notice how you're feeling. And, and it's the difference between responding and reacting is noticing. Because if you react to something, then you didn't take the time to notice. If you responded, you noticed and still chose to respond in a, in a specific way. So first step is noticing. What do you do after you notice these feelings or you're having these this, this reaction inside of you, that this drive that you want to behave in a certain way. So how do you work with executives after they've sort of gotten to a particular level of mastery of noticing? What do you tell them to do next? Yeah, so there's a handful of things you can do. Once you notice, you've already unlocked an enormous amount of choice. And you now have, instead of your mind just being this reactive, automatonic, like, you know, thing, that works just like, like, you know, you blink your eye, it just happens. You now have agency, you now have like choice. You can, you can choose how to act from here. You you could run with, you know, your emotion and like, you could sit with it. So I'll give you like a few options. You could, you could choose to let it go. So, you know, they do this a lot, like in the headspace app or in a lot of like meditations, right? Like you kind of, the metaphor is like, you know, the, your, your mind is a clear sky and the thoughts and the emotions are clouds and they just come and they go just like clouds come and go. There's nothing you can do about the weather. 
you just kind of like let it come and go in the same way that like, you know, I was out at dinner last night. It's, it, was, it was an outdoor dinner. It's, I'm in Florida. There was a quick rain shower, you know, like you can just kind of observe it and take in the beauty of it. And then you can just let it pass. The idea being that if you kind of effort, if you kind of wrestle with the thoughts that they'll actually often enlarge, they'll become more all consuming. Um, so rather than do that, you kind of like a practice might be like, notice how your, your feet feel on the ground and kind of bring your attention to the body and just like notice the thought, notice the, the nature of it. Does it feel warm? Does it feel large? Does it feel small? And you just kind of sit there and, you know, just as I'm sure you've noticed, like you might get angry or sad. And then three days later, you're no longer angry or sad about that thing. Like the mind just naturally has this rise and fall. So you can just kind of like let the thing do its thing and you don't have to wrestle with it. You don't have to judge yourself. Oh, I'm not supposed to be having sad thoughts. You know, my meditation teacher told me I, you know, I'm supposed to feel a greater sense of peace. It's like, no, no, no. You just, you just like chill and, and let it go. So that, that's like, that's one choice. For, for these executives, what do you tend to see that they are, once they've begun to notice, what do you tend to see that they are noticing? feelings, emotions, problems. Uh, what are some common threads and themes of the folks that you work with? Well, one thing that I'm trying to help people with is rather than being kind of like uh, the most extreme version of fighting your thoughts might be like paranoia. Paranoia is like, you know, I think the world is out to get me and it's all, and then there's the opposite of that, right? There's pronoia, which is this idea that like the world is, everything is here to conspire in your favor. And, um, and so one thing I've been, you know, trying to help people with is like, and that I'm practicing myself is having a very kind of positive psychology where I see these things as serving me. So my nervous system, which is made up of 7 trillion nerve endings, right. Is giving me a tremendous amount of feedback. It's pumping me full of data all day long. I'm getting data from my eyesight, from my tactile senses, my smell, et cetera. And so what, if I feel anxiousness, or if I feel sadness, or if I feel fear, um, I treat that as actually like being some sort of useful feedback that actually I, it's, it behooves me to pay attention to. And so I'm actually trying to, through my meditation practice, through my meditation in action practice, I'm actually trying to become more and more aware, more sensitive to how I'm feeling, where I'm feeling it, because I can actually do something with that feedback. Um, for instance, like maybe I noticed that um, I tend to get into a dis, you know, disputes with my wife whenever I'm hungry. Like on day one, I don't notice that there's that the hunger is part of it. It's like it's kind of you have to take the scientific method to this, right? Day one, I just notice, oh, I got into a dispute with my wife, and it's and I could just take a journal of that. Like it's five, it's five twenty-six. We got into a, a dispute or about some minor thing, and then you know, day day three, we got into a dispute at six oh five. And I start to I start to ask questions like because this is the next thing the next thing you can do is you can start to question things so you can start to notice like I wonder what it is that's happening and these these issues seem to always occur between five and seven p.m. Okay, like perhaps it's because I eat dinner every day at eight o'clock, I eat lunch at twelve thirty, and I'm actually hangry between five and seven. Um, tomorrow I'm gonna try I'm gonna try for the next seven days like eating a snack at five o'clock. So let's see if the number of disputes decreases. Um, so I'm kind of, that's another thing you can do with this, with this noticing is you can start to experiment and get creative. 
And one thing that's really cool is you'll start to notice that there are like infinite options of cool things you can do. Like you could use humor. Um, you could kind of make fun of the situation to yourself. You know, you could kind of lighten the mood of it. You could make it less serious. Um, you could add a snack. You could go for a run. You could radically change your posture is a really good one. Like simply just, you know, changing your posture um, is in itself. Yeah, <laughs> you feel that? In itself, it's uh, it's amazing, like what even that one move can do. Um, so you, you start to, you can start to experiment uh, you can go to breath. Breath is a really nice thing to try. Uh, you know, there's all these people that are promoting the use of breath work like Wim Hof. Um, but even just a few deep breaths can significantly change like your your mood, your state of mind, your creativity. Um, so yeah, th those are some of the, some examples of, of kind of what we're doing that with that. And I'll, I'll say one other thing that you said, like, you know, the other thing I've noticed is for, especially for like, if you're like running a business, the feedback is actually incredibly useful. See, at the moment, most of us are just using our mind um, and our mind has obviously got the most you know, nerve endings and it's got all these amazing attributes, but there's also the heart and the gut. And at the risk of sounding a little woo-woo, I don't think it's just like woo-woo. I think there's actually like a lot going on there in your body your body has a lot of intelligence that we're really not tapping into. We're like, we're, we've become very neck up in our culture, especially in the West. Um, there's a lot, like if you really start to pay attention, your gut often feels like somewhere around in your stomach, you'll feel like butterflies when, you, when you're feeling romantic. You might feel um, in your gut kind of this like hollow feeling when you're feeling embarrassed. Um, and the heart I find for myself, like in the ton of the top left corner near my top, like kind of in between my shoulder and my, and my rib cage, I'll feel anxiousness. Like it feels like heavy. Um, and I notice I feel fear, like kind of in my shoulder blade, like my back, right shoulder blade. Like it feels almost like if I close my eyes, it's like a dark force. Sometimes when I'm feeling like really scared, you ever get like someone like kind of sneaks up on you and your whole body goes into like just a flight or fight, you feel that whole, you feel that whole ripple effect of like nervous energy go right through you. Yeah. And sometimes that'll leave your stomach. It'll actually upset your stomach. You ever notice that? Like you get like someone sneaks up on you or something. I was on the beach the other day and they, uh, and like a cat like snuck up on me kind of. And like, and I, it just like spooked me. I didn't know what it was. It was in the dark. And I, I just eaten and I felt like indigestion afterwards. And these, this is feedback, right? Like you can get feedback in so many ways. You could ask a friend, Hey, what do you really think of, you know, what I'm thinking here? Uh, you could ask your co-founder, but you also can trust your gut. As they say, you could look to your body, your body. If it's feeling anxiousness all the time, I assure you, you don't have to feel anxiousness all the time. And that anxiousness is actually there kind of sticking up for you. It's kind of reminding you, it's sending signals to you. Like, Hey, the kind of work we're doing is actually not the kind of work we're supposed to be doing, or, you know, the way that we're relating to money is actually not serving us. It's making us super stressed. Is there any other way that we can relate to it? Could we, could we, could we think maybe instead of trying to make this money in a year, we'll try to make it in three years. Um, you know, so we're basically, the body is telling us kind of where, where we're falling into kind of these traps. Yeah, this is, this is kind of a great, a great segue to this next sort of question that I wanted to ask, which is, okay, so you, you notice these feelings, these emotions, you know, you, or sometimes you, you legit 
physically feel them, not not just, you know, sort of mentally feel them. Like for me, if I get really embarrassed or really angry, I feel like I, I will like feel flushed. Mm-hmm. A very similar kind of feeling, uh, but different emotion. So you mentioned sort of like the shiny object syndrome and like really trying to get to the root of what, what it is you actually want as a human being. I mean, all of us are goal-seeking beings. And I, for me, one thing I've found helpful in just meditation is just it's helped me get a little bit more clarity around what's important to me kind of at a deeper level, which definitely influences the way that I feel about certain things and will sometimes react instead of respond to things is because of what I sort of inherently value. So after you begin to really notice these things, how do you coach people to understand the why behind all of this stimulus that they're now noticing? Yeah. I mean, essentially you can ask, you know, one, one of the, one of the powers in coaching is what's nice about having a coach is that they'll ask you really, if they're, if they're a good coach, they'll ask you really powerful questions. And typically uh, one, the one question to avoid is why, um, why it tends to put us on our heels. It's kind of like, you know, well, why do you feel that way? You know, like, why'd you, why, why are you being, uh, you know, this way or that way, as opposed to that, a, a better question is usually what something, you know, or how, so, you know, what would have to be true for you not to be anxious? And I ask questions like that because the best questions are usually ones that you don't know the answer to right away. They're, they're more open-ended questions. They're not yes, no questions, or they're not, you know, guiding you to one answer or another. Um, and usually what you'll find if you ask someone like a very powerful question, a very broad question like that, that's really, that requires a lot of introspection. Um, you know, what would have to be true for you to um, love your work? You know, like what would have to be true for you to worry 50% less about your financial outcome this year? Um, uh, or what would, you know, maybe th- there could be so many answers to that. What, what normally comes up with people <clears throat> is they'll have, they'll have multiple minds. So they'll have one, they'll, they'll say, you know, well, part of me thinks, you know, if I just made, if I hit my financial goals this year, then, then I'd be psyched. And, and part of me thinks if we exceeded Q1 goals, then I would know that we're on pace and I could relax for a minute. Another part of me thinks, you know, gosh, I really shouldn't expect so much of myself, you know, and the business, like, you know, even if we had 50% of our goals, we I'd still be doing better. That's more than, than we made last year. And, you know, when I think about last year, I was pretty excited about last year's outcome. And like, you know, I actually earned more than my, my expenses. Um, and then, you know, another part of me thinks, you know, I, I'm going to have children in a few years and I really got to prepare for that. So I should be saving some money. And another part of me, you know, is watching my friends who are trading, you know, who bought Bitcoin four months ago and they crushed it. And like, you know, I really should make sure that in this next, you know, this next year that I put away, you know, 20% of my money to save and invest. Uh, and another part of me is worried about, you know, mortgage rates are low and I should really be buying my first home. And, and so they'll end up with all these different voices in their mind that are that have these opposed, seemingly opposing and often, you know, kind of contradictory views. And so one thing that's really powerful in decision-making and, and kind of gaining clarity is to actually interview these parts. Because what I found is what we usually do is we marginalize one, one or more of these voices. Um, like I'll do this, like I'll like marginalize the voice that sounds less woke. I'll be like, oh, no, no, no. Like the new Ryan, 
you know, is accepting and surrenders and has no preferences. And this older version of like Ryan, like small Ryan, the more flawed version of me is saying like, well, I can't accept this particular thing. I really, you know, I have to have this thing my way uh, or I'm not going to be happy. And I'm like, well, we can't listen to that voice. That voice is just wrong. Like, of course we can be happy. We can just, we can just radically accept that. I just need to work really hard and apply all my effort to accepting this thing. And I'm sure in a matter of months, I'll get really good at accepting it and we'll move on. But what I'm doing there is, uh, what generally happens when you do that is that part of you that you marginalize, that voice that you don't listen to, it ends up showing up in the subconscious. It ends up like finding, it, it, it has to be heard. And so you, what I've discovered, uh, you know, which I, I'm kind of borrowing some of this from Western psychology is like, you, you can't really kill any of these parts. They were born out of some sort of trauma earlier in life or some sort of like, you know, strategy earlier in life and they're here to serve you. So the way I've been thinking about it is you can use any analogy you like, but I'll use the boardroom analogy. So I'm, I, my consciousness, the person, the thing in, in me that's noticing all these things, let's call that like the CEO of the company. And the one voice who's like less woke, I need to go to that voice because that voice is like an employee of the company and be like, hey, listen, we actually need you to come to the boardroom today. And we need you to sit down. And I don't want to apologize. We haven't been listening to you very much lately. We kind of labeled you kind of like the less woke voice. And uh, me and the woke employees, we've, we've been kind of belittling you and gossiping about you. And uh, we're sorry about that. We actually have decided we, your mandate is, is, is pure. Like we actually need your mandate. You were born to like protect us against things we just can't handle that we can't accept, for example. And um, now look, I, I created these other characters at the company because they, they came up with some other strategies around acceptance that are really powerful. And we really need to listen to them too. So you basically sit the voices down and you can do this with journaling is one powerful way to do this. And you just journal down, you ask each voice what it really wants. Hey, what is it that you're really trying to tell me? You actually kind of like turn up the volume on the voice instead of turning it down like we sometimes do. And you ask it like, hey, what do you want? What would have to be true for you to be psyched this year? What, what is it that you're, that you're trying to say? What is it you're trying to protect me from? Usually what you find is that the motivation it has is pure. Like it wants actually a lot of the same things that the other employees in this analogy want. It's just, it's methods are not always the best methods. And so we can pick that apart and come up with new ways of helping it actually get what it wants while still getting the thing that, you know, the other voices want. And what usually what I'll find is that there's like a compromise between the voices or sometimes, you know, like one voice is like, I really want to um, wake up and run seven days a week. And then there's another voice that's like, you know, I really want to sleep in and, and be restful. Well, maybe we could compromise four days a week. We're going to wake up and go for a run and three, we're going to rest. And that way, when we wake up, rather than beating ourselves up and having the normal, you know, discussion with ourselves in the morning about, oh, should I run? Should I not? We're going to agree that, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, whatever, we're going to run. And the other days we're going to rest so that we, we've got that kind of set in stone for at least for a while. But sometimes you actually, if you, keep, if you actually just keep both the voices in your mind kind of loosely held with the intention that you hope that these voices kind of resolve themselves, and you don't force it. You kind of actually give them space. You go for a long walk. You give it a few weeks to kind of resolve itself. You take some long showers. You actually stop inundating yourself with like reading and trying to learn how to solve the problem. You just kind of like give it space. Often what occurs is like a third dimension unravels where you can actually have more of both 
you actually don't even have to sacrifice one for the other. There's like, there's like a third solution that actually gives both of them exactly what they wanted. And so that, that's a big part of what I'm doing too in coaching. Right? I'm, I, I am that journal for my, for the people I work with. I'm basically asking them those questions, logging them for them. And then, and then I'm reflecting back to them. Hey, I heard a lot of like, you know, everything, I heard a lot of extracting value in what you just said. What about, I didn't hear a lot of providing value or, you know, I heard that you don't want to listen to the part of you that's really worried. Like you think that part of you should be more courageous. So you're not paying any attention to that part. Like what, what's going on there? Like, what, tell me more about the part of you that's worried about this. Like, what is it worried about and what does it really want? And through that process, I, I find you can get way more creative decisions um, and, and much greater performance. I want to take sort of the principles that we've we've talked about. Is, and okay, so meditation in action, and maybe just give the audience an example of what this looks like in practice. Like if you have an example or a story, just to help people be able to picture what does this look like in practice. Yeah. So. I'll tell a story that relates to the first part of what we were talking about, how you can kind of catch what's occurring, notice that it's happening, and then you can shift. Um, so just about a week ago, I I was in my my room. I had a couple of friends over and I overhear them in the other room. They're, they're, they're talking about a friend of mine. And uh, and one of them calls uh, this friend of, this is actually a friend of both of ours. He calls him an asshole. And so I leave my room, I go out to the porch where I can hear them. And I start arguing with my friend that, hey, you know, he's actually not an asshole. You know, he's really having a hard time these days. And I don't even know exactly in this moment why he's calling him an asshole. I just overheard him telling this other friend of ours that he's an asshole. And then in the midst of this, I catch myself and I notice, man, like I'm about, I'm entering an argument. My friend's getting defensive. He's like starting to argue why he is in fact an asshole and I'm starting to defend, right? And so I asked my friend, hey, would you mind if I take a, mo a moment and I'll be, I'll be right back? And I go back to my bedroom and I close the door and I lie down on my bed and I close my eyes and I scan and I start asking myself, what am I, what am I feeling? And I notice, oh, well, I'm definitely feeling angry and, and you know, I'm irritable and it feels kind of hot in my chest and I feel kind of worked up. And, uh, but I know, cause I've done this before that that's, that's usually anger is usually like the first feeling that you grab for again, it gives you a sense of control. So we kind of like that feeling, but there's usually a, an underlying feeling. And so I start searching for that. I ask myself, you know, am I feeling sad about something? Is there something about him saying, you know, sadness is usually about loss. Like maybe I had an idea of my friend not being an asshole and now I'm losing that feeling. I'm thinking maybe he is an asshole and I'm losing this idea of him being actually not, not being a good guy. And, uh, and I was like, no, that doesn't, that doesn't feel true. That doesn't resonate. <laughs> so I searched some more and I noticed something I had no idea I was feeling in the moment. I wasn't really that conscious of it. It was kind of subconscious. I noticed I was feeling embarrassed and I was like, man, what am I embarrassed about? Like, I just, I can sense embarrassment. And I started thinking about it and I was like, oh, you know, the friend who was being called an asshole, <clears throat> I just introduced the guy that my friend was telling, um, hey, this other guy is an asshole. The guy he was telling that to, I had just introduced him over text to the guy he's calling an asshole. And I wanted them to be friends because I want these three, I want all these people to be like in this friend group of mine. 
And I'm embarrassed that he's now thinking that my friend that I introduced him to, like, what is, what, why would Ryan introduce him to an asshole? So I'm like, man, he's going to think I've got poor judgment, a character that I introduced him. And all, and oh, by the way, I know they happen to just schedule a call for next week to meet each other. And now like, he's going to have this super negative opinion of this, this guy that I was hoping he'd be friends with. So it's like undermining this desire of mine to get all these friends of mine, like into this, you know, circle that I want. And so realizing this, I took a moment and I took some deep breaths and I, I went back outside and I asked my friend who called the other one, who called this guy now. So I said, Hey, would you go on a walk with me? And uh, cause I don't want to talk about it in front of the, you know, this other friend of ours. And so we go for a walk and I was like, listen, Hey, I, um, I'm really sorry about, you know, a moment ago, like arguing with you out of nowhere about our friend, you know, um, to be honest, I was feeling, I was feeling embarrassed. Um, you know, I, I really want him. I just made this introduction, yada, yada. I tell him the whole thing. I'm like, I'm really embarrassed. And, uh, and I asked him a question. I'm like, what's going on? You know, I, I, you're friends with this guy. Like, why, why are you calling him an asshole? Uh, like, you know, what, what, what's behind that? Or, you know, what, what are you thinking? And he, and he was like, oh, well, you know, I don't really think he's an asshole. I, I, I just, he's been really hard to schedule with lately. And like, we've been on these texts, you know, and I've been trying to get time with him and he's just been like really flaky. And, and uh, so I was just really frustrated with him. And I was like, oh, you know, like what, like what a relief. Like I thought, like I thought, you know, you, you thought one of our mutual friends suddenly was an asshole that I thought we were all, you know, close with. And uh, I was like, yeah, you know, first off, you're, you're right. He has been really flaky and I'm really sorry that, you know, that you've been feeling like he's such a jerk for that. So I, I can imagine why that is really stressful, like, you know, and annoying that you can't schedule with him and he's being so flaky. Um, and, uh, you know, but would you mind going and telling this friend of ours, he just told the, you know, this other guy's an asshole too. Would you mind like telling him that, you know, there's about the things about him that you like, because I just introduced them and, you know, I really want them to get along. And, uh, and by the way, I don't want him to think I'm a bad judgment of character. And I just told him exactly what I wanted very clearly. I didn't like argue or lecture why it's right or wrong for him to do that. I just asked him to do me a favor. And, you know, I think that he found that pretty disarming. And so he agreed and he went back and he told him like, you know, Hey, by the way, you know, and I went back and told the other guy, like, Hey, I've got to, I actually told the other friend too, like, Hey, I'm sorry, man. I was kind of embarrassed earlier. Cause you know, and I revealed to both of them what I was feeling and, Anyway, we all resolved it very easily. And, uh, but the practice that I'm, you know, kind of highlighting here is like, I noticed my feeling in the moment. And when I started the argument, I didn't know anything about my feeling embarrassment. I was, you know, like I was triggered, you know, I was just feeling like lit about it. And the ability to go into my room and separate for a moment and feel and scan my body allowed me to understand what was really happening. What is my body really trying to tell me? And then with that information, I could go and be much more skillful, much more like adept at actually getting the thing I really wanted, which was for these people to like all become friends and for my judge, my character to not be like, you know, at risk with this friend of mine. And, and I was able to be really clear with what I wanted. I, I think often we actually don't even know what we really want. We're just kind of like murky on that. And then we're very reactive and, and then, you know, the whole event just passes and we didn't even get the thing we even wanted. Um, 
So anyway, that that's an example of kind of meditation in action, like meditation off the cushion. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And you use the word that I, I definitely had in my mind, which is clarity, uh, it, particularly cl- clarity around what you're actually what that desire is deep down buried behind those those emotions or those feelings. The executives that you're coaching, are there things that you've noticed that are common, uh, whether it be personality types or just are they all over the board? Like, how do you coach them to go beyond noticing and figure out exactly, okay, what are we after building this startup or raising this fund or trying to crack cold fusion, for example? Yeah. And when you really get down to the heart of it, we all want um, a sense of security, safety. Um, We tend to want growth, like a feeling of growing, a feeling of learning, a feeling of expanding. Um, and we want to be accepted and we do all kinds of crazy, you know, things to try to get these three things to occur. And we are usually not really clear about what, what it is we're really solving for. Like I asked a guy, uh, yesterday what he wanted, uh, financially. And here's a guy who's working extremely hard. Like this guy's working, you know, 16 hour days. He's been doing it for, you know, well over a decade. He's in, and and um, I asked him like, well, hey, well, what are your financial goals? And it, it, he was kind of taken aback. He, he had never really, he didn't know, he was almost like, he didn't almost fully know what I was even asking. I was like, well, like, you know, like, is it like a certain amount of money you want to have in the bank, a certain amount of money you want to have per year, you know, in income? And well, he said, well, you know, I've always had this number in my head. And I said, well, what's the number? And he told me the number. And I said, okay, well, how did you come up with the number? And what I figured out is that, you know, the number was pretty arbitrary. I'm like, man, you're spending a lot of time and energy. Um, I'm sure for more reasons than just the money, but partially, you know, a lot of what our discussion was about was about money. He's very anxious about, you know, having this certain amount of money. And I was like, but we, we don't even really know why you want this random number. And um, so we started peeling back the, the onion a little bit and I asked him, you know, well, what do you spend in a year? And what he spent was way less than, than the number that he wanted. And, and even the interest he could earn conservatively on the number. I was like, you know, you could, you could have like a third of that number and still put it into, you know, at 4%, you could earn more than you're spending. Even, even if you started, you know, even if you add two kids in private school and you, you know, cause he, he hadn't had kids yet. Even if you add some of these expenses, you'd still could, you know, have a third of that number. And um, anyway, we started getting much more laser focused about like, you know, how could he actually solve the thing he's really trying to solve, which is, you know, he wants to have like, like any, like any of us, he wants to have financial freedom, financial security. That was one thing. Now, of course, he also wants to feel growth and he wants to feel like a sense of creativity and contribution. And so, but maybe there's other ways to fulfill those needs. Like some of that could come from like having those children he's been thinking about having or, you know, volunteering or, uh, or, you know, some of it of course could come through his company, but doesn't necessarily take 16 hours a day to get. Um, it, some of it could come from just replacing himself with someone else on his team in some of the roles that he doesn't enjoy doing. So he has more time to do the creative parts or more time to pursue the learnings that he wants to learn um, and still hit the financial numbers. So, you know, I mean, Tony Robbins talks about this. He says like, you know, extreme clarity brings extreme motivation, which brings extreme outcomes or something like that. And I, I really think it's true. Like we just, 
you know, Bill Gates, I think and Warren Buffett say like, you know, we spend way too much time doing and not enough time thinking. Uh, and, and Jeff Bezos talks about this, you know, he talks about how we really only need three hours a day to make really good decisions, especially if we're senior executives. And, uh, and we really should rest more and play more and just have more time to make really high quality decisions. And, uh, and then you only probably need to make three hours, um, but we kind of busy ourselves. So yeah, I think we, that's one thing that's really powerful in the coaching is like, I, I enjoy this probably my own coaches that I get the space you know, really step back and like observe what's happening, what I, what I really want to ask these really hard questions. Uh, and I also find journaling has been really helpful for that, for, for me at least. I'd be curious if the folks that you work with, you know, on the goal setting piece, obviously there's financial goals, but outside of just financial, talk about the process that y'all go through. You've noticed, you get to the point where you're able to notice, you get to the point where you are able to get clarity underneath what you were noticing about what you were noticing and then you, you understand what you want so how do you how do you get it how do you achieve that yeah well the first step you know is is really knowing what you want in any given moment um and uh, the, the my favorite question for that is simply like what do you you know what do you really want with the emphasis on the really and and then and then the second follow-up question to that is um a really powerful question to ask is what else and just like empty bottom yourself out. What else, what else, what else, what else? Get everything down that you possibly really want. And then ask the question, well, what is the challenge right now? And, and then, you know, piece that apart. And part of that is going through those different voices I mentioned, because you're going to find that there's a part of you that wants one thing and a part that wants another thing. And they seem to be contradictory at times. And, and, and sometimes they really are contradictory. Um, and sometimes there's a, there's a way to reconcile them with a compromise. And, and sometimes, like I said, there's like a third dimension and, you know, as, as an exercise, you could try to come up with an overall purpose. Um, you know, for mine, my purpose right now is something like experience a sense of peace within and in so doing help others experience the same. And then you could establish an end goal to support your purpose. So like for my, my end goal is to become a world, become world-class at helping others feel a sense of peace, right? Then I'm doing that through coaching. So my purpose is experiencing a sense of peace and helping others feel the same. My end goal is become world-class at being good at helping people experience a sense of peace. And then I have performance goals and my performance goals, they basically feed my, my end goal and my end goal feeds my purpose. So my performance goals are things like, you know, have 18 coaching clients by XYZ date, which luckily I accomplished so far this, this first quarter, you know, earn this much doing coaching, uh, you know, read this, these, this many books on coaching, invest this many hours in my own training, et cetera. Uh, and so those are like performance goals are, you know, typically what they call like smart goals, right? Like they're specific, they're measurable, they're actionable. They're, you know, they're, they're challenging yet achievable and they're time bound. So like, you know, by the end of Q1, I want to have invested, you know, a quarter of my net worth in, you know, things that I'm really curious about that I think have a lot of growth potential. Uh, or, you know, by the end of Q1, I want to have this much revenue or uh, by the end of Q1, I want to have quit my job and, you know, started on my new journey as an entrepreneur or whatever it might be. Um, and then, and then I develop habits and those habits reinforce my performance goals. My, my performance goals reinforce my end goal and my end goal reinforces my purpose. And for habits, I use an app called uh, Streaks, like S-T-R-E-A-K-S, which is a really cool app, it's free. And I basically, you can, you can log in there like as many as 12 habits. 
and every day you just push a button and it, it basically checks the box on performing that habit that day. And I'm really big on giving myself like credit for really small wins because I've found that over long periods, small wins daily or even weekly compound and add up to like major, major changes. So I'm not like, oh, I can't believe I didn't, you know, generate 10,000 in revenue today. It's more like, you know, what did I do today that I, that, 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 you know, I could check the box on getting better at being, you know, a sales professional. Okay. Well, I read a book or I listened to a podcast, like, you know, for 20 minutes on sales, best practices, boom, that that's good enough for today. Uh, If I do that every day, if I do something in that regard every day. So like, you know, I have a bunch of different habits, like reading certain books, listening to certain things, investing in certain trainings, uh, getting seven hours or more of sleep. Like I have these certain 12 habits. I know that if I do those habits, I will naturally end up hitting my performance goals or at least coming close to them. And then I will naturally hit my end goal and my purpose. And I'm, I'm constantly questioning each of these things, by the way, like they're, they're evolving. It's not like they stay fixed. I don't think like your purpose has to be the same for your whole life. Um, and so I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm resetting these things, you know, every now and then. That is an amazing mental model. Just, I just want to summarize. I mean, I, I feel like I'm learning right now. I feel like I'm getting a little bit of a free coaching session. So purpose in goal, performance habits, Habits yeah. lead to performance. Performance leads to the end goal. End goal feeds into your ultimate purpose that you are trying to, you know, live out at this moment, right? So I want to start, and you answered the question that I was going to ask, which is what is your purpose through your coaching business? And you answered that question, but I want to know, there are probably going to be a lot of people similar to myself who are looking to try and go deeper and get more clarity around the very top piece, which is that purpose, which will necessarily feed down into the the lower or actually probably the higher level, you know, the performance and the habits, the day-to-day stuff. But the deep like that purpose, like how did you go about defining that for yourself, your coaching business and how do you help the people that you work with do that? Yeah, so once again the nervous system is here to serve us. So one thing I like to do is ask the question of myself like what has sustained my curiosity for a long period of time? you know, not for like the last three months, you know, everyone right now is into like, you know, uh, you know, whatever tokens and crypto and, you know, maybe that's only been exciting to you for three months and you're thinking, oh, I should go start a cryptocurrency company. But, you know, what has sustained your curiosity for five years, 10 years? Is there some pattern there? Um, And perhaps, you know, is there something trending in that regard too? But one way to do that is to go through your books and your podcasts and your Audible, like just literally go, go look, go 10 years back in your Kindle app and look at all the books. If you have, if you read physical books, you know, go through your bookshelves and look at what it is you've been reading because you, you've naturally gravitated towards certain things for whatever peculiar reason, your parents thought something, you were born in a certain place, you had a certain experience that led you for whatever reason you had certain traumas in your childhood and for whatever reason you got really fascinated by xyz well, well what is that and, and another way to check in on that is start to notice what people are constantly asking you for you'll start to notice that like people tend to ask you for the things that you're often talking about like you've kind of told the universe what you wanted to do and you just maybe you didn't pay attention to it but your friends heard it so like, what are your friends, what are your family, what are your, what are, you know, people on the internet? Like, what are they reaching out to you about? Um, and you could even send an email to all your, like the people that are closest to you and ask them a series of questions, or you could call a handful of them. 
which is a really cool practice too. Like, you know, what do you notice I'm always talking about? What do you notice uh, I'm really good at? When, when, I'm, when do you notice I'm really lit up or enthusiastic? You know, what, what's occurring in that moment? What are the conditions of that moment? Where am I? What am I doing? What am I not doing? Um, who am I with? And that, that's another thing you can catalog is like, you could, you know, right now we're at the beginning of a new year, go back to 2020. Granted, it was kind of a funky year with COVID and go through your, your picture roll on like your phone, go through all your photos, uh, go through your Instagram account, go through your calendar and notice and make a log each quarter or month by month. I actually do it monthly. I'll go through and I'll, I'll do highlights and lowlights. And I'll look at like, what, what was it? What was happening when I was lit up? So like for me, you know, I've been a CEO for 13 years. I noticed I really enjoyed, I was really lit up when like my team was leveling up in some way. Like when I was like, there are certain calls that I would schedule for an hour and I'd end up being on them for an hour and 20. And I used to actually beat myself up. I'd be like, oh, I'm really not being efficient. And usually those calls were me training somebody or, or helping someone solve a problem. Um, and so I noticed that I really enjoyed mentorship and, um, and I, you know, whereas I didn't really enjoy as much, you know, I used to be really good at spreadsheets. Like I'm really competent at that. I, I'm like world-class at building financial models. I do not find that I like wake up in the morning, like wishing I could do more financial models. And when I'm doing them, it's the kind of thing where I'm like, I wish I had Adderall right now so I could get through this because I can't naturally get through this without like an enhancer, you know, or I'll, I'll be like, oh, I got to go get, <clears throat> you know, I got to go get a shot of espresso before I sit down and do this thing I hate doing. So how could I get rid of that in my life? How could I delegate that or outsource that? Or how could I choose a different path that would allow me to do less of that and more of the thing I really enjoy doing? Um, you know, there's this idea of like, there's, there's the things that you're, un, you're incompetent at. There's the things you're competent at. There's the things you're excellent at. And then there's the things that where you feel like you're in your zone of genius. The zone of genius, this is from a book called uh, Conscious Leadership, 15 Commitments to Conscious Leadership, which is a, a great book. Like the, the zone of genius is where like, you're not only excellent at it, but you're also really enjoying it. Um, there are many, many of us who are like, you know, achievers, overachievers, like we get stuck on the things we're excellent at because we're really, we're really well paid for those things. People tell us we're awesome for those things. We get a lot of status for those things. And some of those things we really enjoy doing, but some of those things we don't, we no longer enjoy doing or we never enjoyed doing. And I, I really believe if you actually step away from those things and you step more into the things you really are curious about, I almost find curiosity is a better heuristic than like enjoy. Um, you will eventually get paid for those things because you will naturally get world-class at them. And you will naturally tell people that you're good at them or, or signal to people that you're good at them. And people will naturally pay you for those things um, or give you status for those things or give you security or whatever. You know, these, you'll, you'll, you'll kind of get those underlying wants that you have. So yeah, those are the kinds of things I'm trying to parse. I'm trying to figure out through some of those methods I mentioned. Yeah, that is extremely, I think that'll be extremely helpful advice just for people who are trying to sort of figure out a common thread in their life. Um, I did mention earlier, and this is a bit of a, a selfish ask, um, one of my sort of passions, if I could trace a theme in my life, uh, going back to like when I was 16, when I picked up Warren Buffett's letters for the first time, are like just the way that he was able to structure his holding company and be so successful in that. Um, 
I'm a really curious guy and a lot of investors specialize, but I'm curious about a lot of different things. So sort of the meta curiosity has always been investing and being able to go anywhere and sort of expand that circle of competence. I mean, it's why I named my blog, the circle of competence podcast is because I'm, I'm a naturally really, I'm just really curious. So if it's okay, I would love to just maybe spend a couple questions on, uh, on those, the people that you work with that are in charge of holding companies, they have their own holding companies and some of the things you've learned, but also have noticed in their growth, in their process, in their, uh, sort of day to day that you have ended up kind of focusing on from a coaching perspective. Yeah. So I've been trying to help on, I'm helping right now, like three or four people who have, singular purpose companies become multi-purpose and I'm helping uh, three or four people who already have companies that are kind of, you know, conglomerated uh, kind of take it to the next level. And what I found is, uh, and, and of course I did this myself with my businesses. I turned, I turned, you know, one business with my partners into, into a bunch of businesses. And what I found is that a lot of us out there are very curious, you know, not, not all of us, by the way, uh, but some of us I think are more curious than others about, um, you know, especially about things like build, building things and creating things and or investing in things. And we, we get told by like Silicon Valley culture that like you have to focus, you know, I mean, it kind of comes out of the industrial revolution, right? It's like, you know, society, you're supposed to specialize. Yeah, like Henry Ford, right? And, and then we're told that we have this shiny object syndrome, like it's like a disease that we need to like get rid of. And I've really been trying to help people kind of like lean into their shiny object syndrome and see it actually as like a thing that is a superpower because not everyone has this superpower. Um, and there's so much you can do with it. Now, the, the part of the key to it is you need to build some infrastructure and you need to build a certain set of beliefs. Um, you need to believe that, um, you know, that, that you can have multiple entities that you can replace yourself. You know, there, some of us are have like imposter syndrome and we struggle with this idea that like, you know, that we can replace ourselves or we expect that the people that we're replacing ourselves with will do as good a job as us and we're frustrated when they don't. And honestly, if the people replacing you could do 60% as, as good a job as you, you should move on. Uh, and sometimes you'll get, you know, you'll have good fortune and you'll hire people that are better than you. And so you'll have some areas where people are like 120% as good as you, and you'll have some where they're 60%. And in either, in either scenario, you should move on to the next thing if you're the kind of person that wants to scale and build new things. And, and so part of it is like replacing yourself. Part of it is really understanding financial structuring. Um, you know, it gets challenging when you raise like venture because venture, the way venture works, right, is it wants 10 companies in the portfolio of which one succeeds. So it doesn't want each company to conglomerate because it, 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 is, it itself is conglomerated. The venture fund is spreading its risk across 10 things. It's one of the reasons I, I never liked raising venture because I, I feel I don't want to be like a one in 10 experiment for the fund. So instead, I, I want to have destiny. I want to have control of my destiny enough and you can do this with venture. I mean, there's obviously venture-backed companies like uh, you know Google that eventually had many, many different business lines. But you can, in some ways, do this even easier if you bootstrap. But you can basically build a holding company, and you can drop your existing company into a subsidiary of that holding company. And then you can either raise money at the subsidiary level, or you can raise money at the holding company level, or both. And 
you can, you know, build partners. You have co-founders up at the holding company level. You can have partners down at the subsidiary levels and you can take people as you replace yourself. You can take your best people and say, okay, great. You're doing a great job running the first company that we're running. I need you to replace yourself. Like I replaced myself. And this is one of the main things I was doing as a leader is I was very rapidly pushing people to replace themselves, challenging people because most people will take way too long to replace themselves. And so you need to build SOPs, you need to build training, you need to build tons of recruiting. I, I highly recommend hiring full-time recruiters even early on in the business. And you need to have a real pipeline of talent. It's good to build talent coming out of college, I think especially. And you can hire these rising stars and you can build a rotation program where you start to train people across different departments of your company. And you can start to create like a pool of people like a, like a, that are coming up and populating the positions that you and your leaders are, are leaving and create a culture in which everyone is tearing up their job description every six to 18 months, which frankly, millennials and Gen Z people love doing anyway. That's this is the reason they're always quitting jobs and ma making new jobs. You could create an environment where they don't leave because there's endless new and exciting things for them to do. And what you can do is you can take the leader of one company and say, listen, I want you to start this new company I, that I have. And you know it may not work, but we're gonna try four of them and one of them's gonna work. Uh, or we're gonna buy another company. And I want you to go lead this new company. And, you know, I'm going to maybe help you. And basically you want to transition from being like a manager into being a groomer who's grooming talent and setting up the right culture and the right belief systems in your company that people are able to elevate and replace. And little by little, as I did with my companies, you know, I had, I had a newsletter business. I had a completely unrelated ski resort business. We had a you know, a, a somewhat unrelated festival business and, uh, you know, conference business, a venture fund and a real estate arm that was investing in real estate deals um, in New York and, and, uh, and in DC. I mean, these things had very little to do with each other in some respects, but what was similar was that the talent all understood the overall vision and, and had a certain set of like best practices and beliefs that I was able to kind of like indoctrinate uh, the team with over time. And um, yeah, that allowed, you know, and what's fun is you start getting cash rolling in from one entity and you can start reinvesting that into another entity and into another entity. And then you buy the third thing and the fourth thing and it starts getting really exciting. And as you start to build enterprise value at each of these subsidiaries, you can of course raise money against the different subsidiaries if you, if you want to. Um, you know, like, like the ski resort was, way, was very capital intensive. So we raised money there. The newsletter business was not capital intensive. So we never raised money there. So you don't have to have the same financial strategy for all the different entities. And so you start to get really flexible. Like we sold the newsletter business, but I still owned the other businesses. So I immediately had another job. And the other benefit was when we sold the newsletter business, the buyer didn't say, well, I need you to stay, keep working on this business that I was no longer excited to work on because it was already established. It was already known that I already am very busy working on these other businesses and that this newsletter business doesn't rely on me day to day. And I already have a CEO running that day to day. And I've already moved myself into being like a chairman or a vice chairman of that company. So that's something I, I really encourage more entrepreneurs to consider building. I think it's more fun and more rewarding if you're curious. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting because it seems like there's a tangential relationship between, there's a connection there between holding companies and your coaching business, which is, you know, both are requiring that skill set that you know flexing that muscle of, of coaching people and uh did you find you know it was that also one of those common threads that sort of led into you realizing that like 
I want to I want to coach people. This is what I actually want to do for kind of the long term, and obviously kind of invest my capital opportunistically with other people or other you know entities or, or opportunities. Um, but is that one of the reasons that you you saw and noticed that? Hey, this coaching thing is is fun for me, and I, I feel a sense of purpose there. Yeah, no, it became a superpower of mine to coach people within the company because I've very quickly realized that if I didn't build the muscles of my of my team to think on their own, to be creative, to break things, to make mistakes, if I didn't make an environment that felt safe enough for them to to kind of make mistakes and have screw ups, if I didn't allow them to take risks, if I didn't allow them to make decisions. If every time they turned to me, I just told them how I would do it because I've already done it and I'd probably know a better way to do it than they than I think they do, then I'm just gonna keep feeling drained. They're gonna keep hitting me up. I'm gonna become a crutch for them. And I'm not gonna get to do the six other fun ideas that I have. So it became like a very obvious necessity to me that I'd have to learn the skill set, the craft of of coaching, which is really about empowering people, unlocking their, the wisdom they already have within themselves, allowing them to experiment and grow and develop their muscle for, you know, things like decision-making and creativity and execution. And so that I got better and better and better at that. And a big part of that too, was eliminating bias and eliminating assumptions. Like all too often, I was generally helping people learn how to make fewer, to, to trust their immediate assumptions a little less and to really question things. Um, but at the same time, you know, listen to their gut and like see what, what was emerging there and, and to flip and invert. I was really big on inverting things, which is something Charlie Munger talks a lot about. Like, yeah, like how would this, you know, yes, it, it would be amazing if, um, you know, we had 4,000 people buying, you know, tickets for 50 bucks. What would it look like if we had like only 40 people buying tickets for, you know, 20,000 bucks? Um, you know, yeah, we could cut costs. It's true. We, we could probably double our EBITDA this year if we focus on costs. What would it look like if we took every cost savings and we reinvested it in growth? Um, and we would, I would do these like thought experiments with my team. And we would, we would lead to all these cool new outcomes that we couldn't, we couldn't predict. So yeah, as I sold off my businesses, it became like, I started thinking, man, it'd be really fun to do that with like really awesome CEOs out there and founders and that, that was part of what led me to it. But it was also partially, I wanted to create a positive flywheel where I have to grow in order for me to be a good coach. And so the coaching is actually like this flywheel where in order for me to be good at coaching, I have to grow in order, um, you know, for me to grow, like I have to be good at co coaching. Like they, they just like feed on each other. So I really like, like that, that aspect of it too. If you're curious, you always want to be learning and feeling like you have uh, growth ahead of you and that you are in the process of growing personally uh, from a knowledge standpoint or a uh, maybe a mindfulness standpoint or a spiritual standpoint or whatever perspective. The people that are curious always want to feel like they're also in growth mode. And so for you personally, like as a coach, what does that look like? You mentioned some books that have been helpful, but also outside of just books, like how are you growing to continuously be better you know, at this coaching endeavor and for your clients? Yeah, I mean, I've hired myself five coaches and uh, which is pretty insane um, and expensive, but it's been so rewarding. It's been like really intense. As I'm pretty much on a call with, you know, one of them every day. And I hired five different ones because I wanted very different kinds of people in my life. 
some of them are much more like, you know, high performance Olympic athletes sort of like coaching. Um, some of them are more focused on um, like kind of more of an Eastern, like Buddhist Taoist sort of approach uh, to, to thinking through things. Um, and some of them are more business, some of them are more personal, some of them are more spiritual. Um, and so I wanted to learn all these different modalities. I mean, I've been going to like, I've even been going to like breathwork specialists, energy healers. Um, I've been playing around with the world of like psilocybin and like journey guides and trying to, you know, unlock the wisdom within through, you know, mushroom journeys. Um, but also studying like hardcore business stuff, like, you know, McKinsey has some really amazing material on how to make better decisions uh, or have more greater performance or have organizational change. So I've been really attacking, like learning this from all fronts. And it's been fun because the more I, I as I learn, I distribute it to my, my, the people I'm coaching. And then I basically have 18 different experiments going on where they're trying a lot of the things I've actually already learned and experimented with, as well as some of the new things I'm learning. And then I'm getting all this feedback and seeing like what actually occurred. So that's been really cool. And in terms of the books I've been reading, I also learn a ton on YouTube. I'm obsessed with like watch the watch later feature on YouTube. Anytime someone mentions something, I don't know. I just look it up on YouTube and save it to watch later. Um, but I really like that book. I mentioned the 15 commitments of uh, conscious leadership, I think is like one of the best books I've read in a while. Um, I always will mention Eckhart Tolle, I think is one of the, as one of the, some of the best books, uh, the power now and a new earth as well as untethered soul by Michael Singer for people who want to learn about mindfulness. I think anyone who's managing anybody should learn some coaching habits. And I think the best, one of the best books on that is called uh, the coaching habit. Uh, it was a really great book for that. Yeah. I mean, those are, those are some of the things I've been, I've been paying attention to recently. Um, you know, for, for productivity, I love the book, getting things done. Yeah. I'll see if I can think of any others for you, but those are some of the ones that I've been like recently. I, I have a few questions that I like to ask each guest, uh, and I'm sure you're going to have an interesting answer for each. So let's just, let's just dive in. Are there any personal habits or practices that you're dedicated to that help keep you physically fit, mentally fit, or that you just enjoy doing, you know, for deep decompression purposes besides maybe meditation? You know, I've been doing this thing recently where I will lie down and I'll close my eyes and I'll visualize where's my energy like scattered to like whose energy am I tied up in? And, uh, you know, each time I'll pick different people, like, and I've noticed that, you know, we want to be approved. We want to be liked. And so we kind of have our like energy, if you will, tied up like tentacles into other people that we want things from. We want their approval, whatever. And I'll visualize detaching, like almost like a literal, like umbilical cord, like, hey, let me take this back from my co-founder, the umbilical cord. And in so doing, let me return to him or her, like their umbilical cord into me, their thoughts, their notions, their desires that they have of me. And it's kind of a way of strengthening my boundaries a little bit and like be feeling more whole and like complete on my own. Like, you know, I don't need to have these people approving me necessarily. I can be whole from within. I can, I can be okay just within myself. And I've been finding that practice has been really powerful um, and has been helping me realize a bunch of air, like my energy is kind of scattered. There's like a lot of things I'm kind of wanting and I'm not very concentrated at times. Um, so that's been one cool new thing I've been, I've been playing with that's been really helpful. What personal values or beliefs are most important to you and how do they impact just how you live out your day to day? 
Well, one belief I have is, is about beliefs itself, which is that it's really powerful to, rather than just focus on when you know what you want, I think a lot of us then immediately go to focusing on the habits that we need to have or the tactics or the strategy that, and we go and we, we look at, you know, people we admire who have accomplished the things we want and we study their habits uh, or their strategy or their, their model. And what I found is actually, if you really want to get a shift or a breakthrough, the one thing I believe is if you actually track and try to decode what their beliefs are, like, what does Michael Jordan believe? Um, you know, what is, what does Bezos believe? You know, what does mother Teresa believe? Like their beliefs, if you, if you can model some of their beliefs and buy into some of their beliefs, it'll actually naturally unlock the habits, the tactics, the, the mental, like all the models and all the things you need to achieve the thing you want. The belief will drive like the motivation. If you believed wholeheartedly that like, you know, you're worthy of accomplishing X, Y, Z, or you, you're it's possible for you that you could do something like naturally it gets easier to go and attack it. Um, you know, and you know, like, like I believe it, I'm better off not using venture capital. It's just like one belief I have. So like out of that belief comes a bunch of choices and, and, and strategies, you know, like I'm going to pre-sell things because I need to bring in revenue early, but like, I don't, I didn't start with that strategy. I just started with a belief I had about like wanting to have, you know, all the more of the cap table controlled by me and my partners. And out of that belief came the tactics. So that's been one thing I, I believe is really a more powerful model is like you start with what you believe, then you figure out what you need to do and then you'll kind of get what you want to have. Yeah, to sort of add to that earlier mental model about about goals and clarity of purpose, it almost seems that like the beliefs sort of sit at the very bottom and then you have sort of in, inform the purpose, inform the end goal, informs the performance, informs the habits. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that adding to the earlier mental model. Yeah. So like beliefs are kind of like the foundation and it sort of like, it sort of builds from there. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And you can remember like, be, do, have, you know, believe then do it, then have it. Last question. What business hasn't been started yet, but needs to be? And maybe another way of asking this is if you could snap your fingers and solve one pain point, either personally or professionally, what would it be? Well, for a long time, I've been wanting to create the Westminster dog show for rescue dogs. And, uh, and I, th I just think it's a great business idea and it really would be really fun to market. And as someone who comes from the events world, I, I, I can imagine how to produce that uh, and bring that to market. In terms of something that I think would be really good for the world, I mean, I'm really excited about new technologies and mental health. And like, imagine if you could have a more immediate feedback loop, like where, you know, you could kind of gamify well-being, where your mind was given the notices we were talking about, where it was like Earth to Ryan, you're starting to feel anger and you could have like a, a feedback loop that maybe your phone or some device is helping you have. I think, you know, with what, what Musk is working on with Neuralink and, you know, some of the breakthroughs we're having um, in genomics, like I, I think it, there's, there's a future where I think we'll look back on this age and be like, wow, I can't believe we suffered so much. That was a really crude time. And the same way that we look back at like the middle ages and it's like, I can't believe like, we, you know, humans live through the middle ages. It looks brutal, you know, and uh, maybe it'll be Netflix series about how, you know, terribly depressing and, and challenging this, 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 you know, first few thousand years of humanity was, that, you know, or for tens of thousands of years of homo sapiens. Well, Ryan, this was a blast, man. And uh, definitely a different conversation, but I think this would be super helpful for a lot of people just to 
really reflect on what it is they want and how to get it and how to live a more peaceful and, and happy life. So I appreciate you taking the time and I'm looking forward to uh, at some point having you on for another go round. So thanks. Yeah, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. This was, uh, this was fun. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.